You're listening to Mount Carmel Baptist Church's weekly Sunday worship service message at 11 a.m. Mount Carmel is located in Demarest, Georgia. To learn more, visit mtcarmeldemarest.com or facebook.com forward slash mtcarmeldemarest. Thanks for listening. Matthew chapter 9, verses 1 through 2. I want to preach to you a, a message that I've entitled... Who's your one part one, okay? But today's sermon I've entitled, The One They Carried. The One They Carried. In the wake of the two recent mass shootings, the one in El Paso, Texas, and the other in Dayton, Ohio, together they left 34 people dead. Afterward, astrophysicists, Neil deGrasse Tyson tweeted this, and listen to the whole tweet in context. He said this, In the past 48 hours, the USA horrifically lost 34 people to mass shootings. And then he goes on just to say something so dismissive and insensitive just unaware of what had just happened. He goes on to say, he says, on average across any 48 hours, we also lose 500 to medical errors, 300 to flu, 250 to suicide, 200 to car accidents, 40 to homicide via handgun, and then gives us this truism. Often our emotions respond more to spectacle than to data. Besides Tyson utilizing faulty comparisons, in my line of work, we would say this is incredibly pastoral insensitivity. There's no comfort in the data in that moment. There's not. You're shaking your head. Like, that's not the time to have that discussion. But we know this as Americans. When tragedy strikes our society, we get to debating quick. We began to debate and to blame or assign the cause. And then some of us, at least in the debate, will try to be more proactive and say, well, what could have been done to maybe prevent this? But we really don't give time to let it sink in and let it kind of mourn. Yet, there is a tragedy that has a higher mortality rate than all other causes combined. There is a cause, and there are measures we can take. And in Matthew chapter 9, Matthew helps identify the cause with a 100% mortality rate. Let me tell you what Matthew's been doing in this book so far. Matthew has been peeling back like the layers of an onion. Jesus' authority and His power to deal with humanity's most basic, fundamental problem. In Matthew chapter 8, Jesus touched, cleansed, and healed an incurable leper. So please catch this. In Matthew 8 at the beginning, Jesus heals an incurable leper. Then the next paragraph, Jesus heals with just a word, a paralytic who was miles away. He gives the word and this paralysis leaves that person's body. 
After that, he touched a woman with a fever and she was immediately healed. She got up and served him, the text says. Still later in Matthew chapter 8, a violent storm threatened the disciples' lives and Jesus gets up and rebukes it, hushes it with a word. And then at the end of Matthew 8, which brings us right into chapter 9, he cast out demons from two men. So Matthew is showing us along the way, all through Matthew chapter 8 with these incidences, he's picking and choosing some stories about Jesus to show and demonstrate to us once and for all, Jesus has the power to deal with our issues. And yet, it is not the most basic, fundamental, or threatening issue. Medical, natural, or the demonic is not humanity's most basic, fundamental problem. What is the crescendo? What is Matthew heading toward that he wants our eyes to be on? This will seem like an outrageous claim, what he's about to make to you and I. But there is something more destructive than mass shootings, all sickness, suicide, and car accidents combined. Listen to what it says in Matthew chapter 9, verse 1. So he, meaning Jesus, got into a boat, crossed over, and came to his own town. Just then, some men brought to him a paralytic lying on a stretcher. Now let's just pause a minute. Have we heard stories about paralytics before so far in the book of Matthew? Yes. So we, this is the same old song and dance. We know what's going to happen, right? Jesus is going to heal this paralytic. And, and Matthew does something unique. He highlights something in the story that's more mesmerizing. He goes on to say this, Seeing their faith, Jesus told the paralytic, Have courage, son. Your sins are forgiven. Your sins are are forgiven. The first thing that I want you to write down in the insert or in your Bible app, the leading cause of suffering. Now, I'm going to give this to you and you're going to have to give me a little bit of time to put it into context. But the leading cause of suffering is sin. The leading cause of suffering is sin. Now, I do not mean to say that if you are sick or paralyzed or you've experienced some tragedy, that it's due to your own personal individual uh, sin. Now sometimes that is the case. We can do something that trespasses or transgresses the boundaries of God's Word and it can cause dire consequences in our life. But I'm talking about the suffering that's experienced in the world, according to the Bible, all hells back to Genesis chapter 3 when Adam took of that fruit and trespassed God's word and sin and death and destruction and the curse of God entered into the world. And it has been affecting humanity ever since. All of you, if you've ever been sick or you've ever experienced a tragedy, you've been touched by the effects of sin. And it may not even be your own sin. It could be the sin of the person sitting next to you. That's how widespread sin is. Now, I want you to first imagine, though, being this paralytic. paralytic. 
It must have been a huge letdown to the paralytic to have been taken all this way to King Jesus. He's heard the stories about Jesus healing paralysis. And instead of immediately being healed, what does Jesus pronounce over him? Your sins are forgiven. How tragic. How sad. Jesus, that's not the problem that I have. I'm not coming to you about my sin. Write this down, church. One of the greatest deceptions of sin is that suffering is worse than sin. One of the greatest deceptions of sin is that suffering is worse than sin. See, that's what sin likes to do. Sin likes to cut itself away from suffering and think that suffering is some other force in the world. Sin wants to distance itself from suffering. And here's what you need to know. God has kind of wed sin and suffering together. So that when we see the world broken, when we see the tragedies that we do, we don't see them as isolated events. They're a part of this cosmic story in which humanity has rebelled against the holy God and we thought we could get away from it. But here's the good news. I don't want you to despair this morning. If God was done with you, He would have left you alone. We have the Word of God, the written Word that tells us about the living Word, Jesus, who came down to do what? Forgive sin. So there's hope. This doesn't have to be the rest of the story. But I need you to understand, Romans 5.12, just write this reference down. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin, in the same way death spread to all people because all sinned. Notice that death is coming for every single one of us. Why? Because all of us have sinned. Sin is the most destructive force in the universe. Think about the destruction we endure every day because of hatred, violence, division, jealousy, adultery, rape, abuse, theft, selfishness, deceit, Greed, laziness, and the list goes on. So we experience physical, temporary discomfort and suffering now because of those things. But then even the Bible goes on to say that the wages of sin is death. And he's not just talking about physical death. He's talking about eternal separation from God. It's not just separation from soul and body. It's separation from creature and creator. That's the ultimate death. And that's where every single one of us, apart from repentance of sin, turning from our sin, recognizing its, its vileness, and running to Jesus and embracing Him as our Savior and God, every single one of us will end up in a devil's hell. Is there any way we can reverse this phenomenon? Is there any deeper healing that's available? Is there any preventative measures we can take? Not you and I, but Jesus can. What does that text say again? Jesus says your sins are forgiven. Number two, write this in your insert and your Bible app. Jesus can forgive sins. He can erase them. He can erase them. Church, do you hear what I'm telling you? 
He can undo what we've done wrong. What a hope, what a help. Here we see Jesus' divine authority at its ultimate, at its pinnacle. That as God's Son, He has the right to forgive sins, and listen to this church, with just a word. He can just announce it. But that's not the full picture. Just to show you how far the Son of God is willing to go to forgive you of your sin. He does not just make this a matter of authority. He also demonstrates His love in that while we were still sinners, Jesus Christ went to Calvary, bled and died for your sin. So that you can know beyond a shadow of a doubt that the penalty for your sin has been paid. There is no wrath that hangs under you. And God's love is for you. You don't have to wonder. The the issue has been settled at Calvary. And if you say that's too good to be true, Jesus is not just some man. Again, He's God's Son. And to prove that Jesus really can forgive you, change you, and give you eternal life, God raised His Son from the dead, and we've been ordered as His followers and disciples to preach forgiveness in Jesus' name. There is no other way to, other, other way to God except through Jesus. You can be forgiven in this life. Sin cannot be prevented in the sense that if you turn from your sins and trust Jesus as your Savior, we're not promising you that you will never sin again. Now we do promise you a changed life, but on this side of heaven, we do not promise you sinless perfection. But while sin cannot be prevented, it can be forgiven, it can be canceled, it can be erased. And here's the glorious news. Is once your sins are forgiven, and when Jesus returns, because He's not dead, He's alive, He sits at the right hand of God the Father, He's ever interceding and praying for us, ready to hear our faults and whispers, our calls of confession to Him, that one day He'll break open through the sky, and He'll come to execute righteousness and judgment. And my Bible tells me in Revelation 21.4 that it says Jesus will wipe away every tear from their eyes, death will be no more, grief, crying, and pain will be no more because the previous things have passed away. See, it's coming. He's going to undo it all. He's going to erase it all. The question that lies before you, and you need to understand this, it's a matter of timing. Every single person, according to the Word, will one day surrender to Jesus. That's what we mean by His kingly authority. You don't get to elect Jesus. He's coming to take what's back, what belongs to Him. He created it all. The question is this. Today, you've been given an opportunity to surrender. To put your hands up and get on your knees and say, Jesus, I am a sinner. Forgive me. Take my life. And when you do that, you'll be welcomed with open arms. But if you continue to delay that, one of two things are inevitable. We always say this, if it's inevitable, why wait? One, either we will die and be appointed to judgment, 
or Jesus will return and judge, judge us. We can't escape giving an account of our lives to this man we just read about. And you've been given the warning today that only Jesus can forgive you. So what excuse are you going to tell him on that day? There isn't one. Because see, it's not only an issue of authority. He's even shown full that he loves you. He gave his life for you. Yes, even you. If you're wondering, me? Yes, you. Will you recognize you're a sinner and give your life to Christ? But there's something else that's a part of this equation. Here's a troubling question after I read this story. Since the leading cause of suffering is sin, but Jesus can forgive sins and change lives, why isn't everyone rushing to Jesus? I sit there and read that story and go, well, here's the answer to humanity's problem. Really? This is it. The most basic fundamental issue that has thrown this world into a frenzy and even our personal lives, all of a sudden, God breaks into this world and goes, I'll resolve it if you want me to. So why is not everybody flocking to King Jesus? Because this is another truth in the Bible, and I believe it's true. All of us are like the paralytic. None of us come to Jesus on our own. None of us have the spiritual health. We're all dead in sin, and we can't not just get up and walk to Him. Someone must carry us to Jesus. Someone must carry us to Jesus. And I want you to think about this for a minute, church. Every one of you, if your sins have been forgiven by Jesus, someone carried you to Him. Someone did. This past Wednesday, I, this is providence as far as, as, as I'm concerned, an old friend of mine, Jessica Stamey, tagged me in a Facebook post. And she tells her story just so beautifully. She says, I'm so thankful God moved first in my life. He saw me as an eight-year-old kid who needed him. He sent four ladies to my door to invite my family to church. I wanted to go, and my mom let me ride the bus to church. I went to youth camp that summer with my new church family. I believed the gospel and Jesus saved me. I remember that night like it was yesterday. All I can say is thank you to every one of those adults and teens who were faithful to Christ and poured into me. Not just that summer, but for the rest of my life. I don't want to imagine where I would be if Christ had not moved first and He didn't keep moving first, if He didn't keep moving first. I know there are so many that I could uh, tag in this post, but I'm going to try. Please know I'm forever grateful. Feel free to share how Christ moved first in your life. Grady Williams, the pianist at the church that I grew up at, knocked on my parents' door. Kept harassing Mark Taylor until they came to church, and my daddy got saved at that church. My dad, and y'all have met Marcus, he don't play. 
He sent us to a Christian school, mom and dad did. We went to a spiritual retreat, and there Eric Simpson led me to the Lord. I've yet to find a story of a person waking up one day and said, I just wanted Jesus. Do you understand that? That don't happen. Somebody comes and goes, can I carry you to Jesus? <laughs> can I tell you about Jesus? Can I invite you to my church? So the question isn't, why, are, why aren't people flocking to Jesus? The question is this, why are disciples of Jesus not carrying more people to Jesus? If we know, if God, if we know He can heal and forgive, it's us that's the problem. You want to go so far. Why is there unforgiveness in the world? Because the church stays immobilized. We have the cure, right? Here's the most damning thing in this whole passage sin wasn't an issue, it could be forgiven. Here's what I think is the most damning part of this whole passage. Look at what it says in verse 2 again. Just then some men brought to him a paralytic lying on a stretcher. And then the next three words. Seeing their faith. Seeing their faith. Jesus perceived that they deeply believed that Jesus could help that paralytic. Jesus' apprehension of their faith was not some special, supernatural, spiritual insight. It is literal. He saw their faith in what? Them bringing people to Him. He goes, wait a minute. These men are men of faith. Why? They brought that paralytic to me. See, the question is this. Where is your faith? And I can tell you where your faith is. If you're bringing people to Jesus, your faith is probably strong. And if you're not bringing people to Jesus, it's time to just hear the truth. Your faith isn't, if it's there at all. Number three, write this down. The leading cause of evangelism is faith. It's the truth. Do you really believe it? Do you believe Jesus is the only way? Do you believe that Jesus really can forgive people? Do you believe Jesus can actually change that neighbor, that coworker, that family member that gets on your nerves that Jesus could actually do something with that person? Do you believe it? Because if you do, you'll get them here. You'll get them to Jesus. We have to accept the fact that our faith or our lack of faith is impacting people for eternity. It's on us. How could we possibly get to a place where we feel so deeply that Jesus is the only solution that we would run to other people and say, you've got to come to Jesus? Matthew has one more story to tell. I don't think this is by mistake because if you know this, if you go look at other Gospels, Mark, Luke, they're much more in a chronological order. G, uh, Matthew is building an argument about how powerful Jesus is. There's one more story he has to tell to show you just how powerful Jesus 
is. Are you ready to hear that story? It's just the next paragraph. Look at Matthew chapter 9, verse 9. As Jesus went on from there after the paralytic, he saw a man named who? Matthew. Sitting at the toll booth. This guy's a tax collector, a traitor, a sinner. And he said to Matthew, follow me. And he got up and followed him. See, here's where all of us, we can insert ourselves right there in the Bible. The greatest sign of power that Jesus has displayed is we can look at somebody else and go, he changed me. <laughs> Isn't that the truth? I want to show you the pinnacle of power. He took a, a traitorous sinner like myself, Matthew, and he made me one of his own. And you're hearing the gospel today from that toll booth collector, Matthew. He goes, you want one better than a paralytic? Jesus changed me. Can I ask you a question? Have you forgotten where you were? Have you forgotten what it was like to be lost in sin and on your way to hell? Have you forgotten what it was like to not know the voice of Jesus and then that instance in which he calls you and says to follow him? I just believe that if God grants us the ability to remember where we once were, we might be motivated just to carry one more person to Jesus. So what should you do today? Remember that reply. <laughs> Neil deGrasse, after he tweeted, a person jumped on him. <laughs> the first response to this tweet was this. He says, last night, someone's family was murdered. I told them not to react to spectacle. I showed them data on car accidents and flu. And then I told them not to get carried away. Strangely, they didn't appreciate my advice. Ladies and gentlemen, when you think about the lostness in the world, I'll tell you what you need to do. You need to get carried away. You need to be beside yourself. You need to have the mentality of whatever it takes. we got to bring just one more to Jesus. In my first sermon that I ever preached in this pulpit, in view of a call. It was entitled, A Godly Dissatisfaction. I reported to you that within five miles of this address, there are almost 24,000 people, and 30% of them are not involved in a faith community whatsoever. That's at least 7,200 people right around us in the belt, the Bible belt. Now, I want you to think about this. There's maybe 200 of us here today. Ladies and gentlemen, are we going to let 7,000 people slip into a devil's hell on our watch? That's the question. You say, Josh, that sounds like a megachurch. Well, whatever has to be done, right? Right? Not one. Not one should go without warning on our watch. Here's what I want you to do, and write it down. I want you to get carried away with carrying one. Get carried away with carrying one. Church, we've got to go all out. We have to go crazy. 
Desperate times call for desperate measures. And then after we carry one person to Christ, you know what we should do? We carry one more. Then we carry another and another and another. We make this our discipline. We make this our habit. We make this our rule. That we cannot be satisfied with just one until every knee bows to Jesus. Until he comes, as Mount Carmel says. Charles Haddon Spurgeon, one of my favorites, says it this way, If sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our dead bodies. And if they perish, let them perish with our arms wrapped about their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions, and let not one go unwarned and unprayed for. Thanks for listening to Mount Carmel Baptist Church's weekly Sunday worship service message. Mount Carmel is located in Demarest, Georgia. Please join us this Sunday at 11 a.m. To plan your visit, go to mtcarmeldemarest.com.